Our private choices always have public consequences. Private choices always have public consequences. Sooner or later, whatever a person sows, they reap. Our choices determine our actions, and they have influence upon others in their lives. Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of Great Britain during World War I, said in a speech, looking at the world of his day, that we must either have Christ or chaos. That is the choice. I wonder what Lloyd George would say if he were living today and looking at our world. Would he not say that even more emphatically, more urgently, for us individually, for us as a culture, for us as a world, it is either Christ or chaos. There are those who in this age of cynicism who say, you cannot believe anything. How erroneous they are. And Michael Novak in a recent article pointed out, quoting that statement, saying, these cynics say that they cannot believe in anything. They flatter themselves. He, say it, he said, it is impossible that a person cannot believe nothing. He will believe something. In fact, in our day, we do not have unbelief. What we have is incredible gullibility. We believe anything. Someone says, well, this is my thing. I'm going to do it. Well, okay. Everybody do your own thing. This is the way I see it, and so that's the way I'm going to do it. Irrespective of any moral law, irrespective of any sense of right and wrong, without any sense of the moral law of God written into the nature of the universe as surely as the natural law of God is written into the universe. They coexist, created by the same Creator. Our day, because of that erroneous idea, is inflicted with a kind of rationalism, a relativism. And it is pernicious. And it is destructive. The idea that I can do anything I feel like, whatever my glands dictate, whatever the circumstances dictate, whatever I feel, whatever I think, it's my thing, I can do it. And everybody does that which is right in his own eyes. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with the book of Judges, where that phrase is repeated time and time again, because they had no king in Israel at that time. The Bible says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And the result in those days was chaos and it will be the result in any day when King Jesus is not on the throne of a person's heart and life and enthroned in the policies and principles of a culture. And what we have today is an epidemic of everybody doing their own thing. Moral relativism is the curse of the 20th century. It's not new. It goes all the way back to the book of Judges 
Everybody doing that which they felt like was right, ignoring the moral order of Almighty God. You couple that with the equally erroneous and destructive and pernicious idea of the innate goodness of man. Not man's sinfulness, his goodness. That if you just give him indoor plumbing and two cars in the garage and breakfast in bed and a good education and a toothbrush, his life will be okay. Now, I do not minimize the fact that circumstances can have a disastrous effect upon a person's life, that circumstances can contribute to certain dispositions or activities. But irrespective of the culture, irrespective of the economic status, irrespective of the educational level, there is still a moral right and a moral wrong plowed into the nature of the universe. Some things are always right. Some things are always wrong. It is wrong to murder. It is wrong to steal. It is wrong to lie. It is wrong to bear false witness. It is wrong to have any other God before us than God Almighty revealed in Christ. So we have today the idea that uh, our environment is the primary problem. If someone does something wrong, they're basically good. And if they happen to do some, something wrong, it's got to be somebody's fault, and so it's our fault. It's society's fault. It's the fault of the culture. Well, if culture were that critical to behavior, what happened to Adam and Eve? Here they lived in a perfect environment. I mean, they had everything. It was ideal, idyllic. They talked to God, God talked to them. And God, having created them in His own image, created them with the capacity to choose, and so He gave them that capacity to choose, and they balanced in their mind right and wrong and decided not to believe God. And so there entered into the human race the consequences of their choice. Our private choices always have public consequences. And theirs did. It, entered, it introduced sin into the bloodstream of humanity. And they had to move out of Eden. And they moved over in a new subdivision called East of Eden. John Steinbeck wrote about it. And that's where they lived. They'd been in a perfect environment. And they sinned. Sin, my friend, the Bible says, is real. And all of us have sinned. Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they use deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. And the way of peace they have not known. Look at the 20th century. The way of peace they have not known. The bloodiest century in the history of the world is the 20th century. God only knows what's going to happen in the next century. Sin is a fact. We'd like to minimize it. We'd like to gloss it over. We'd like to blame other people. We'd like to shift the responsibility. But it is there. It is there. And all of us have sinned. Not in the same way. We've not all sinned alike, but all alike have sinned. 
In one way or another, it has manifested itself in behavior and in consequences in the lives of other people. It's a reality. Speaking of ideal environment, here's a young man that gets caught up in the best crowd of of, of young people that ever got together. I mean, they had three years of the most incredible fellowship. They had the three years of the most amazing experiences. Here were 12 young men surrounding a man named Jesus who was going about raising people from the dead and healing people and forgiving sins and changing the world. You talk about a good crowd. You talk about a gang for God. There it was. And one who was one of his best friends, one who was one of his closest compadres, sold him down the river for 30 pieces of silver and kissed him. It sounds like the hissing of a serpent. And later said, I betrayed innocent blood. He was in the right crowd. He was with the right person. He knew Jesus Christ intimately and individually. And he disobeyed. He betrayed him. Why? Because of his heart. Desperately wicked, the Bible says. And deceitful above all things. My good friend, uh, Ralph Langley, who many of you know, he's preached here before, pastored for so many years at First Baptist Church in Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, I called Ralph a week ago just to visit with him. And we were talking on the telephone, and I said, Ralph, how are things going? He said, well, Buckner, they're going a little better now. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, we just had three grandchildren with us for a month. (laughs) You know who's laughing? Grandparents are the ones that are laughing. Did you notice that? I watched... Looked around. I got it in a hurry. Um, a month. And they were about 8, 10, and 12 years of age, that age group. Ralph said, Buckner, it was wonderful for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and then he said this, I learned more in that one month about original sin <laughs> than I learned in three seminaries. He said, even on the way to the airport yesterday, taking them to Birmingham, send them back to their parents. One of my grandchildren looked at my shoes and said, those are the ugliest shoes I ever saw. (laughs) Raph said, we got them to the airport and tried to look sad when we waved at them, leaving, going home. You know, we prayed the Lord's Prayer a few moments ago, and we prayed, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I heard about a fellow who was talking to his friend, said, you know, I, moved, I joined a different church last Sunday. He said, well, why did you join a different church? He said, he said uh, well, the church I've been going to, you know, the one you go to, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we always say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He said, this other church I visited a couple of Sundays ago, they prayed, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, as we forgive our debtors. He said, I got to thinking about it and realized that I had more debts than I did transgressions, and so I was going to move, going to move over there to that church. I don't care what name you call it, what name you give it, what name you have in the English vocabulary for it. All of us have sinned and come short 
of the glory of God. And there is one solution to that, and that is to choose Christ. For it's either Christ or personal chaos. And Simon Peter talks about it in his first letter to the church, listed as 1 Peter in your Bible, second chapter. Let me read you the first three verses. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the grace of God. The transformation of life is conditioned upon tasting the grace of God. Not just looking at it, not just knowing the recipe, not just being able to define it, but tasting it. You may know a lot about Christ. You may have heard about Him all your life. You may know many facts about Him. You may read the Bible. You may belong to a church. You may be a respected person in this community. And I admire you for all of those things. But none of those will substitute for a personal taste of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. When you taste something, you ingest it. You don't just look at it and analyze it, have a seminar about it and define it. You ingest it, it becomes part of your blood and your bones and your brain. And when we have tasted him, that's why in the communion, we don't just look at the bread and talk about the bread and hold the bread and analyze the bread. We eat it. Gets into us. Becomes part of the warp and woof of our lives. We don't just look at the cup, we drink it. Becomes a part of us. We don't just look at Christ and analyze Christ and define Christ and even praise him. We ask Him to come into our hearts if you have tasted Him, if you have ingested Him, if you have experienced Him. Have you done that? Does your heart resonate with that? Does the Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? And if so, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Is there that internal bearing witness? I know what Buckner's talking about because I've experienced that. Are you sitting there saying, Buckner, I've never had that. Listen, the table's set. The bread of life is present. Take him. Ingest him. Faith him, which is not a noun but a verb. Faith him. Take him into you. Let him become a part of your life. Taste experientially that the Lord is gracious. And marvelous things begin to happen. This new taste of grace will produce some new actions in your life. Choices have consequences. And the choice of Christ as your Lord, the choice of Christ as your Savior, will have consequences. And Peter begins with those consequences. Therefore, putting aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and jealousy. Why? Because you have tasted what happens when you let Christ come into your life. The light of the world comes into your life. And what happens? He begins to replace all of that stuff, all that junk, all that hatred, all that malice, all that envy, all that jealousy, all that slandering. He begins to push it out. Not by repression, not by rejection, but by replacement. How do you get the darkness out of a room at night? Curse the darkness, throw things at the darkness, preach about the darkness? No. Turn on a light. And the darkness cannot contend with the light. It cannot overcome the light. The light penetrates it and pushes it back. And what it does in the world, in the natural world, it does in the spiritual world. It will do in the darkness of our hearts. The light of Christ will push back all of that darkness and begin to push it out of our lives. 
and malice will begin to leave hatred. What a world it would be. What homes we would have if there were no hatred. Just think of it. Just think of it in a moment. What a world we would have. No hatred. No child abuse. No spousal abuse. No drive-by shootings. Malice. No wars. Push it out. His light will push it back and back and back beyond the parameters of our lives. Guile or deception. Trickery. That means having the hands of Esau but the voice of Jacob. Deception. And hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. That really means play acting. That really means pretense. That really means pretending one thing, but you're really something else. Every now and then, don't hear it much anymore, but occasionally you do. Someone say, well, I don't know whether I want anything to do with the church or not because it's full of hypocrites. I say, no, it's not full of hypocrites. I've known a few in my life, and I guess all of us at one time or another felt ourselves to be that way. But uh, hypocrisy is not the same thing as imperfection. And I say, the church is not full of hypocrites, but, but the church is full of imperfect people. And I'm looking in the face of a bunch of them right now. In fact, everybody hears that, and you're looking into the face of another one. When you look into my face, there's not a perfect person in this church or in this world or on this planet. There's never been but one. And so the reason we're here is not to put on some act. The reason we're here is because we really do believe that this sandal-wearing carpenter from Nazareth has something to say to our lives today and comes to make a difference in our living. We're here because we're hungry for that grace that, he, that we have tasted. We're here for that light, however dim it might be, that is shining in our hearts, and we want more of it. We're hungering after that and wanting more of it, needing more of it, and by our presence confessing it. That's like accusing somebody who goes to the Baptist hospital of being a hypocrite because, well, they're going down there. He go, I'm not going to go to the hop, hip, down to the hospital. Everybody down there is a hypocrite. They're all sick people. That's right. That's why they're there. I'm not going to go eat today because, they're, you know, those people are all in there. They're all eating at the restaurant. They're all hungry. They're hypocrites. No, they're hungry. People here in church, not hypocrites. You came here today. I do not know what overt reason it might have been, but down deep inside, I believe somewhere back there in your heart was a hunger for a word from God. And I'm not God, and this choir's not God, but God speaks through people and through prayer and through praise. And God is speaking to your heart here this morning, and He is saying, I'll be the bread in your life. I'll be the wine of your life. I'll be the light of your life. Push out that old hypocrisy, that imperfection, that evil, that malice, that evil speaking. Like newborn babies. In other words, tasting the grace of God creates a new appetite. Not only produces new actions, it produces a new desire, a new appetite. 
a new appetite. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word of God, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, some of my dearest friends are Roman Catholics, and some of the finest Christians I know are Roman Catholics. And I agree with their Christian commitment. I may agree with some of their interpretations. Oh, my goodness, I do that with some Baptist. So, I mean, <laughs> nothing new about that. Um, I, I, the Roman Catholics believe uh, Simon Peter was the first pope. That's fine. And they believe because they believe in, in the celibacy of the clergy. They believe that Simon Peter was celibate, that he never, never married. Maybe. I don't know. I have a different opinion of it, though, because I read in the Bible where Jesus went back after leaving Nazareth where they forced him out of town, and he went down to Capernaum. One of the first miracles he performed there was on Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick. There may be ways to get a mother-in-law without being married, but I've never heard of that. <laughs> and he did a gracious thing, for Simon, and Simon Peter was concerned about his mother-in-law, and so Jesus performed a miracle. He, I, I personally believe that Simon Peter had children. It's hard for me to believe that... that uh, a man who'd never had children would have thought of this analogy to describe what happens once you've tasted the grace of God. I don't think he would have thought of, of, a, of a baby crying in the middle of the night. Hungry! How many of you have had that experience in your life? Every one of your hands will go up, I know. We're having it at Michael and Harriet, our son and daughter-in-law's house right now, little Michael Buckner Fanning, two weeks old this past Thursday. They don't have to wake him up to tell him it's time to eat. <laughs> he wakes them up at all of these horrible hours to tell them it's time to eat. Why? Because it's his nature. He wants more of that that's giving him life. And the same thing will happen to us when we have tasted the grace of God. We want more of that which is giving us life. I remember when our children were born. Mike was born first. Three years later, Stephen. And in the middle of the night, he'd begin to cry. Martha would be sound asleep. <laughs> and being the good Christian I am, I'd say, Martha, Martha. <laughs> time to get up. Mike's crying. Steve's crying. Well, I know what it is to be inconvenienced. Martha would get up and go off in the other room, feed the baby. Sometimes, it took me sometimes 30, 45 seconds to go back to sleep before I could. It was a inter, horrible interruption in, in my life. I, I know what it is. You know what it is. All you mothers know what it is. And here it is. What he is saying here is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Once you have tasted of the bread of life, once you know the grace of God, you are going to hunger and thirst after more of it. You're going to hunger, hunger and thirst after righteousness, after that which is right. Pa, uh, Pascal, one of the greatest minds in the history of the world, great mathematician, the inventor of the computer, and a great Christian. He said, the existence of hunger presupposes the existence of bread. The existence of hunger in you presupposes the existence of bread. God doesn't play tricks on us. 
He has created us with the appetite for food and we need to eat food. And He has provided that food. He has created us with an appetite for God. He has created us with a hunger for God. And He has provided that in the bread of life. Take it and eat it. This is my body. This is my blood. Take it, take it, take it. I give it to you to give you life, to give you grace, to give you peace. Choose Christ. And there will be no chaos in your life. You hunger for forgiveness this morning? You hungering for some meaning in your life? Hungering for the right kind of love? Hungering for peace? Take and eat. It is my body. I love you. And here is my gift to you. Take it. As we have said, no one can go back and have a new beginning, but everyone can start now and have a new ending right here, right now, today, in this place. You can taste the grace of God and the old things will begin to pass away and all things will become new and you will know peace and forgiveness and the grace of God. Would you come this morning to share that decision with us, to trust Him as your Lord, to publicly acknowledge Him? Everybody in the New Testament that followed Christ did so publicly. There were no secret disciples. Everyone that became His follower followed Him. That's the very nature of what it means. And one way is to follow him into the life of his church, wherever it might be, wherever they might be worshiping, under whatever name they might be worshiping, in terms of denomination, worshiping Christ. He wants you to be a part of a church. And he leads you into his body, his fellowship, his bride, his family. So I'll be here to welcome you to come, as some did in the earlier service, coming on profession of faith, coming into the life of this fellowship. Your choices has a con have consequences. And the choice you're making right now can have and will have eternal consequences. Come, I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand and let's sing.